Welcome to Question Period. I'm Evan Solomon. Today on the program, military misconduct. Sexual misconduct continues to be a destructive problem within the Canadian Armed Forces. Why has the military failed to deal with sexual misconduct four years after a damning report found an endemic culture of sexual harassment? And why was a monument to fallen Afghan vets unveiled in a shroud of secrecy? Government representative and Canadian veteran Karen McCrimmon joins us. Then we'll hear from retired Major General and the Commander in Afghanistan, Dave Fraser, on the scrum. Plus, green light pipeline. I'm confident that uh, we do have the jurisdiction. The Court of Appeal disagreed. Uh, there are other courts, higher courts, that we will likely appeal to. A unanimous court ruling in B.C. gives the green light to the controversial Trans Mountain Pipeline. Will the government finally push through and build it? MPs join us to debate the fate of pipelines that might run through the next election. And then, bias bailout? We want to protect our democracy. We want to protect professional, neutral, and professional journalism. Is the panel advising the government on which media organizations will get part of their $600 million bailout package biased? Will the government's help end up hurting the perception of the independence of journalism? The Heritage Minister, Pablo Rodriguez, joins us with the latest on the controversial idea. This is Question Period. Let's go get some answers. We are working with DND to uh, make sure we understand what that decision they took was around the cenotaph and ensure uh, that it is a, a monument that will be uh, there for everyone uh, who wants to remember and celebrate uh, those veterans who, uh, who stood for Canada uh, on faraway in faraway lands. Well, it has been a bad week for the military. A new memorial to fallen soldiers in Afghanistan was put up secretly inside the highly secured Department of National Defense. And veterans, families of the fallen, the public, the media, all barred from it. Now, after severe blowback, finally the chief of the defense staff on Friday issued an apology and promised to reverse the decision and make the monument more accessible. But it's all raised questions about the judgment of the military leadership, especially after a damning uh, new details revealed that four years after waging war on sexual misconduct in the military, there's been very little progress, according to Statistics Canada. 900 full-time military personnel reported being victims of sexual assault in 2018 alone, and over half of the respondents say they're dissatisfied with what happens after they report it. What more does the military and the government need to do? We did ask the Defence Minister, Harjit Sajjan. We also asked the Chief of the Defence Staff, General John Vance, to join us. Neither were made available. But Karen McCrimmon is a Liberal MP for Ontario. She's also a former member of the Canadian Armed Forces, and she is with us here. Thanks for your service to our country, and thanks for joining us. Thank you, Evan. Uh, let me ask, start with the memorial. Uh, now they've apologized for this. Who made the decision? Because I'm interested in accountability here. That's what your government in 2015 was elected on. Who made the decision to keep the memorial to the, the, the fallen members of our country in Afghanistan secret? I'm sorry, I can't answer that question. I don't know where that uh, decision was made. Um, I read in uh, General Vance's apology that uh, they are going to look into how that decision was made. They realize that a mistake was made, and I think that's why the strength of his apology, the way it was written, it, it was unreserved, saying we were wrong, we made a mistake, and we're going to make it. He's the boss. To be candid, CTV has obtained some in, uh, some emails from 
Department of Defense. There's names all over these things about this thing. General Vance, over, he was there at the ceremony that nobody reported on until days later. Why, is it ta why does someone like you and I and the rest of the country still have no answers? Where's the straight accountability? If he's apologized for it, why can't he say, I, made them, I, I, I did this, I'm accountable? I think he did say, I'm accountable. Well, what does accountability mean in that sense? Well, it means that he's accepting responsibility for the decision, whatever the decision was made, at what level, you know, in the hierarchy. And it's kind of, to me, it's kind of, it was kind of tone deaf. They, they should have realized that there would be people, there would be families, mothers and fathers and sisters and brothers and children who would want to be there. When, when, but the other thing I wanted to highlight to you, this is the memorial that was taken out of Kandahar. This is not the Afghanistan monument. The Afghanistan monument is still under development. Right now, the latest report I got is that the site selection is almost done, and then there will be a proper Afghanistan but monument. This was the Kandahar Memorial. That's correct. This thing was started by soldiers, and then those soldiers were excluded from seeing it, and they've had to apologize. You're a veteran. How did it make you feel? Well, I mean, I'm also an Afghanistan veteran. So I think, uh, as I said, it was kind of tone deaf. I don't understand. Were you hurt? I was uh, hurt. I was disappointed. I thought that they could see, and I think the General Vance did mention that in his apology, how much this would mean to people, especially those who had lost a loved one in, in Afghanistan. So I'm glad he's apologized. Well, I'm what, glad he's, he's, what he said is he wanted to keep the ceremony reverent, and then he said he wanted to make sure that this monument was not vandalized, which, you know, it happens occasionally. But, but what is, a lot of people are reading that they want to essentially bear, you know, sort of hide away no. the tragedy of what happened in Afghanistan no, not, to those not uh, men all. and women. I could understand if someone was to say, I want it in, in National Defense Headquarters so we never forget the cost of war so that it never becomes an easy decision and that everything we do to serve the people that we've sent off to war, it's got to be at the top of the list, it's got to be our very best. I, I get that piece of it. But I also believe that they needed to involve those who had made those sacrifices. Let's talk about leadership. When General Vance became the Chief of the Defense Staff almost four years ago, the first thing he's talked about was Operation Honor trying to stamp out sexual misconduct in the military. According to Stats Can Now, that basically has not been done. There are 900 members of the military reported sexual assault in the last, in 2018 alone. This has been a failure. Oh, I, I'm not going to, I have to disagree with you there. Because what, first of all, it was CAF that asked Stats Can to do that review to okay. get those numbers so they tell? know you know what it says we know we have a problem we have a problem and unless we have a way of tracking what that problem is we're not going to be able to solve well, with it with all due respect the reason four years ago you knew you had a problem that's why operation honor started i don't you don't get a pat on the back for finding out four years later very little's <laughs> changed i guess my question to you is has it shown that whatever's happened in these four years has not worked it needs a refresh it ne it needs more I think we've made tremendous progress, but there's a lot of work What's to be done. What's the tremendous progress? Like I'm, I'm, when you say even that, okay. just, even a 24-hour call line that you can call and you can get access to support, you can get access to counseling. People are there to help. 
that was huge. I mean, we started, I think, uh, with that the crisis line early, but now it's been expanded to 24 hours availability. And I mean, I joined the Canadian Forces in 1975. That right. tells you how old I am, right? But it has gotten better. But that does it's that better, mean better than that? Oh. Look, we're not talking about better than the 70s. I'm talking oh. about better than four years ago. When you have 900 cases of sexual misconduct and assault in the last in 2018 alone, after this, I guess again my question is, and it goes to leadership here. And I'm not trying to throw General Vance under the bus, but the memorial was a screw up. Operation Honor, according to StatsCan, has been almost has negligent effect. He is the guy that told CTV News he owns the Mark Norman issue, which is the vice admiral that had his name dragged through the mud with a charge that was recently dropped, the second in command of the military. Um, he said he owns that. And by the way, this week, the prime minister uh, recommended that he get a, a, a raise to $306,000. Okay. Is that your government, do they still have faith in General Vance or in the defense minister, Harjit Sajid? What we need is cultural change. And cultural change, it doesn't happen overnight. And what you need is a thoughtful, deliberate plan. There's a book out there, and I think it's called uh, Culture Eat Strategy for Breakfast. Because you can have all the good policies, all the good plans and procedures you want. But if you don't match that with cultural change within the organization, it's not going to stick. And that doesn't happen overnight. But you need accountability. Yeah. If, 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 you could, if these things are, if you admit, if the, look, MPs outside of the prime minister apologized in the House to Mark Norman. That was a mistake. You've just said there was a mistake on the memorial. There's a, Operation Honor has not been nearly as effective. Who's accountable? If it's General Vance, what's your government going to do about it? If it's Harjit Sajjan, the Minister of Defense, what's your government going to do about it? You were elected on accountability. A lot of people are wondering, where is it? Oh, I think there's a lot of accountability there. But I think it's better to have people say, yeah, we made a mistake. I would much prefer that than having someone stand up and say, no, nope, nothing wrong here, nothing. Admit you made a mistake. Admit that you didn't make the kind of progress you were hoping, and then redouble your efforts well, to make that progress. What's the weak? How do you justify giving the guy a raise in the midst of all this? Well, you know well that that's a regular scheduled part of the the program raises, and so it's not something. Are you that saying was they didn't directly, have a choice? No, it's not something that was directly related to any of these issues. Uh, it was just in a normal schedule of things. That to, you, to quote yeah. a very famous political line from Brian Mulroney, "You sir had a choice." Is this the week to say, not the day for a race? It probably wasn't done this week. It was probably done a while ago, and it just became active. I don't know that. I don't know Is that. Is it time for a change or a refresh? Given all this, do you believe it's time for a change and a refresh in the military? But I, in the military? Yeah, military leadership. We have, to, we have to address some issues in the military. Yes, we do. And, so, and it takes leadership on board. And this discussion, it'll happen between the Prime Minister and General Vance. It'll happen between General Vance and Admiral Norman. And I think the fact that Who those have, by the way, have not still met. Oh, I, I didn't know that. But they will. But they will. And this is their responsibility oh, you to will. deal with this issue. Okay. They will, I'm sure. i, I got to leave it there. There's lots on the plate. I really appreciate you joining us. Thank you so okay. much. It's my pleasure. That is Karen McCrimmon, who's a Liberal MP and a veteran of the Afghan conflict and the military. Coming up, a dramatic court decision, a unanimous court decision in British Columbia could alter the pipeline debate and maybe the next federal election. Will this kickstart or further delay the building of the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion? MPs are up next. To debate that, stay right here with Question Period.
So a unanimous ruling by the B.C. Court of Appeal has reignited the urgency of the pipeline debate after a court ruled that British Columbia cannot restrict raw bitumen shipments coming through its borders via a pipeline. The B.C. Premier says his government will appeal. But no question, his cause to stop the Trans Mountain Pipeline has suffered a real blow. So, what happens now? Will the federal government finally start construction on the Trans Mountain Pipeline that runs from Alberta to the coast of British Columbia? Joining me now to defend and debate that, Paul Lefebvre is the Parliamentary Secretary to the Natural Resources Minister. Lisa Raitt is the Deputy Conservative Leader. And Peter Julian is the NDP's energy critic. Great to have all of you here, Mr. Lefebvre. Let me start with you. Um, this is a unanimous ruling. Um, does this change the timeline as to when your government says it will get uh, shovels in the ground and start the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion that you bought with public dollars for over $4 billion? Well, certainly for us, this decision confirms our position that when it comes to interprovincial major projects, that this is federal jurisdiction. At the same time, though, certainly are the issues that has been raised with this, certainly on the environment, on indigenous concerns, as well as local concerns and, and, and engagement, those are all things that we take very seriously. And we certainly on the TMX uh, path forward and that we still want to follow the, the decision made by the Federal Court of Appeal, make sure that we are respecting the, our environmental obligations, as well as meaningfully consulting with Indigenous peoples, and as well as raising and hearing those local concerns. Those are all things that we take very seriously, and that's why for us this decision obviously is, uh, you know, we expected this, this type of, of result, but at the same time we take our obligations very seriously. Okay, but do, can, can you answer the question that I've asked though? When will shovels go in the ground? Does this alter your timeline? No. Give us a date. Well, 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 certainly, actually, about a few weeks back, we actually made a statement that uh, we will make a decision uh, before June 18th. That, that, that is up to, to the cabinet to make that decision as to how things will proceed on, on the TMX uh, pipeline. Well, Lisa Ray, they say June 18th is the date. This doesn't change that. Maybe it changes the calculation. Uh, you know the B.C. government's going to appeal. What's your, what does it tell you, this decision? Well, you know, I think this is just another consequence of the mess that the Liberals have made with respect to energy projects in Canada. Back in 2016, we were pressing them to make sure that if they were going to make changes, that they were going to do it quickly so that there wouldn't be any uncertainty. And they proudly proclaimed that they were going to be referees in this matter and not cheerleaders. Well, fast forward two years, they were made to buy a pipeline because there was so much misunderstanding and not amount, no amount of actual contentment that there would be the ability to build a pipeline, that they had to go in and purchase one. Today we see a court of appeal indicating on a very strong decision that the B.C. government was not allowed to do what they sought to do, which is essentially stop this interprovincial pipeline, and now it's going to go to the Supreme Court. But it's just delay after delay, Evan, and it's just one big mess that commenced back in 2016 with this Liberal government. Well, well to be fair, and I'll go to Peter Julian, the, the, you know, it was the NDP provincial government that actually brought this to the Court of Appeal. They've lost. It's not like the Liberals brought it, although where does this leave the fight against the pipeline that your party supports, uh, Peter Julian? That, look, this was a unanimous decision. They cannot try to stop the pipeline by regulating what's inside of it. Uh, disappointing, uh, but it is a constitutional de determination, and it, it's going to be subject to appeal. I, I don't think it changes the fundamentals. I mean, Canadians have lived through 
over the past couple of years. Increasing numbers of catastrophic events uh, linked to climate change. Uh, certainly we're seeing the earliest forest fire season ever in our history. Uh, out of control fires burning in May. Uh, we've seen the flooding. We saw the catastrophic heat wave last summer. So I, I think the, the fundamentals around uh, why this project is, is such a bad idea have not changed. But, sir, sir with all due, respect, with all due respect, those are not uh, legal issues. Those are issues that you may find are very pressing and urgent. But the, the fundamental issue is this: the Liberal government was elected saying that we are going to have a mandate to build this pipeline. I, I guess my question now is, does the Court of Appeals unanimous decision make the fight against this legally almost impossible? I don't believe so. The Federal Court of Appeal, as you know, put this back in the hands of the federal government and they have uh, a number of times now uh, missed deadlines or changed deadlines and most recently the federal government uh, has not, uh, not guaranteed that they're even going to make a decision prior to the federal election, which means it's turned over to Canadians. And certainly I think uh, most Canadians understand the impacts of climate change, I, I, I understand that uh, the $4 billion cost for the pipeline plus the 11 or 12 billion dollars and climbing cost of actually building it uh, do not make sense either environmentally or economically for Canada. Uh, Mr. Lefebvre, that the, the, the knock on your government is you're just ragging the puck. That you're trying to delay this to death under the guise of consultation. You are basically kicking this forward so you don't have to deal with the politics of this before the federal election. So can you look Canadians in the eye and say, we will tell you that we're going to build the pipeline, that a, a court of appeal says you've got the right to do this, you're doing more consultation. By June 18th, will your government tell us when those shovels are going in the ground and if and when the expansion will be built? Evan, the... Canadians expect us to get it right, and that's what they have. What they, what they want to have confidence in the process that we are following. And that, you know what? We are we, we are following the federal court of appeals decision, making sure that we are engaging in meaningful two-way dialogue with First Nations and where we can accommodate, we will accommodate, as well as making sure that on the environment, we are are, are protecting obviously oh, okay, the. Okay, but it, I, I get all that. You've said that it. So okay. that's why. why yes, exactly. What about June 18th? What will happen well, on exactly. that day? You know what? June 18th, basically, the, the cabinet will be making a decision as how to move, best move forward. On, on Trans Mountain. That is a, that that decision will be made uh, b before on or, or before th that date, and that is what we want. But at the same time, the reason why we are making, you know, what we, we are taking th this time, it is important to get it right to make sure that we are following the advice that we have. We actually have the advice from Justice Yacobucci, a, a former Supreme Court of, of Canada judge, to make sure that if we, as as we are looking at all the options that 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 we have and how to move forward in the right way that we get it right. And that's what Canadians are expecting of us, and that's what we want to deliver. Uh, Lisa Ray, I'm just trying to figure out the conservative position on this, because y y yeah. your party and others are fighting the federal government on jurisdiction over uh, the carbon tax, which court says they have. And then, you're, then on the other hand, mm -hmm. you're saying, hey, assert your federal jurisdiction on pipelines. Right. How do you have it both ways? Yeah. Well, you can if you take a look at, and I thought about this when I was coming into the studio today, Evan. In the case of the carbon tax, it was a question of whether or not a mixed jurisdiction was going to be weighted in one way or another, and it came down to whether or not a tax was allowed. In this case, the jurisdiction is really clear, and you can tell the difference between the two because in the BC Court of Appeal case today, it's a very, it's a unanimous decision. In the other one, it was a split decision because there's still uncertainty on the taxation side. The courts are clear. 
interprovincial pipelines are federal jurisdiction. Pipelines need to be built in this country. We need to move our energy in order to get it to market. And all we've had for the past three and a half years is a real big mess that has given no certainty to investment or to Canadians. All right, I got to leave it there. Uh, Paul Lefebvre, Lisa Raitt, and Peter Julian, I really appreciate that. We'll find out where this goes in the wake of this court decision, uh, and we'll see you back here in Ottawa, obviously, on Monday. Coming up, media bailout bias. Will the government's controversial $600 million bailout package over five years undermine trust in the media or help it survive the Google onslaught? The Minister of Heritage, Pablo Rodriguez, joins us next right here on Question Period. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Question Period. So will the government's controversial $600 million package, the media bailout that happens over five years, help or hurt the media? Now, on one hand, the argument is media in Canada is struggling to compete with giants like Google and Facebook. Some might get the money and incentives to hire staff and tax credits for subscriptions. That will help them. On the other hand, does the perception of government support of certain organizations undermine trust in political journalism? This past week, the government announced an advisory panel of eight organizations that will recommend to the minister how the money should be dispersed and to whom. But some of the organizations, like um, the uh, largest public sector union in the country, Unifor, which represents many journalists, have already openly declared their opposition to people like Andrew Scheer. Is the process already tainted? Let's find out. Joining me now is the Minister of Cultural Heritage, Pablo Rodriguez. Uh, Minister, let's start at the beginning. One of the organizations on the advisory committee is Unifor, the private sector union. They represent journalists. They've already called themselves Andrew Scheer's worst nightmare, the resistance. Why are they on the list? Isn't that partisan? Well, we wanted to make sure that the panel uh, was constituted with uh, people from all the spheres, from, from the news world. So you have owners, you have unions representing journalists, uh, you have um, minority groups, uh, Anglophone minority groups in Quebec, Francophone groups outside of, of, of Quebec, ethnic media. Uh, it, has to, it had to be balanced, represent the regions, represent uh, the official languages, and I think we, we reached a, a good balance there. But, but yeah, answer the question about Unifor. Already, Unifor on Friday tweeted out, if Andrew Scheer doesn't understand the connection between a strong media and its role in preserving our, our democracy, he's unfit to lead. Andrew Scheer, who's criticized this whole idea of that your government's basically trying to bribe the media to give better coverage, has said this proves his point. So let me ask you again directly, should Unifor who have openly campaigned against Andrew Scheer, be on a committee advising you which journalists to fund. Doesn't that taint the process? Uh, 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 if, if I may, I just want to correct something. Uh, this panel doesn't decide who gets the money. This panel uh, decides on the criterias. And, and they also decide on the next panel, on another level, panel that will decide who is eligible based on the criterias. So it's really arm's length. It's really independent from the government, and that's what we wanted from day one. Now, regarding that, that union, it represents, it's the biggest union in the industry, represents over 13,000 people. So the question is, uh, are we saying that we don't want the workers to be represented? We say, no, we want the workers, the owners, um, both official languages, regions, this and that. So I think we struck a, 
a good balance. Will you promise to make every decision this advisory group makes and the next group makes transparent in terms of how your government decides, who is what your government calls a qualified journalistic organization, and why they got the money? Will all that be transparent and no secrecy? Absolutely. Absolutely. All the recommendations. And so they'll be making recommendations on a lot of things, and some some uh, will maybe, be, uh, anyways, 100% of the recommendations, as you were asking, will be, uh, will be public. It is because it's the, the whole intent of, of, of our action, make, uh, making sure that uh, this is done on an arm's length basis, respecting the experts that sit on those panels. Um, you know, the groups that are consulting to name experts, can name people in their organization, can name people outside of their own organization. Um, so we'll listen to them, we'll listen to what they say, and we'll definitely make it public. It's, it's really important that we do so, and we will. Sorry, the, what I want to know what's public is the applications. People want to know, whatever media organization applies for money from this $600 million fund, will the applications be public, and the decision as to who gets the money and who doesn't and why, will that be public? Yes, I think, yes, you have to understand that everything, the whole process will be public, and it starts where? It starts now with a panel that will have access on the criteria that will uh, recommend a second panel that this panel will analyze the request based on the, the criteria set by the first panel. And then some people will accept and some people won't. But all of this will be public. Yes. Uh, Minister, don't you feel like there's a little, it's a little frightening when the government's determining who's a qualified journalistic organization? That your we're, government's out there, you are hiring a panel that is a pan essentially made up of people who have lobbied for help from the old media, and they're going to determine who's a qualified journalistic organization. Don't you think that leaves the perception that there is a sense that your government's trying to buy sympathy from the media? Well, some people could have the perception, but we'll make sure uh, that we demonstrate that we're doing the right thing by, as you said, making everything public. Uh, by, by making sure that it's that it's arm's length and and we have to act you may say it's not perfect fine how can we improve it the, the panel will also give us advice on on ways to improve or improve things to move forward but not acting would be extremely irresponsible papers are closing down the regions are that have no more access to information so you go to a, a specific community there and, and they don't know what's going on at city hall they don't know what their MPs doing on in ottawa they are a representative in, in the provincial capital, I think it's it's uh, irresponsible, and this allows for for fake information to take more and more room, uh, and and this is hurting our democracy. So that's why we're moving forward. I, I guess the big concern is who, whoever determines who gets the money is going to have a very big impact on our democracy. If the intent here, it's not the government. But it's well, it's a government, government appointed, but that. sir, it's a government appointed panel, and I'm, there's already conflict about the advisory panel who's going to give no. you advice and the next group advice about their sense of bias. Don't you see that there is a concern about that? That there's that this is in, in some way an, a direct or indirect way to try to influence coverage? No, absolutely not. No, no. We want from day one we said it, and we've been very clear, and and we did everything to make sure that we stay away, we stay at arm's length from this. So the panel that will be deciding on who gets the, 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 the financial support is, will be recommended by another panel, not even from us. We're taking this as far away from us as possible. All right, I, I got to leave it there. And Minister, I always appreciate you joining us on the program. Thank you so much. Th 
Thank you for inviting me. Thanks. All right, coming up, how did the military put a monument to, fall, to the fallen in Afghanistan in secret that barred veterans' families and the public from actually seeing it? The Scrum is next to talk about that, and our special guest will be the retired Major General who served in Afghanistan, Dave Fraser. Stay right here with Question Period. I think that was a, a very cold and callous decision. I have no idea why the, uh, this Liberal government would want to have that recognition, that ceremony behind closed doors. Afghanistan veterans and their families were upset to learn that a memorial to the mission built by soldiers, for soldiers, has been hidden away at the defense headquarters where the public can't access it, veterans can't access it, families can't access it. The monument was intended to honor the fallen, but it was unveiled in a private ceremony with little fanfare. They didn't even invite the soldiers' families. The chief of the defense staff has already admitted it was a big mistake, but why did they decide to hide it away? Should the prime minister have to apologize? All that plus why the military made so little progress in its effort to stamp out sexual misconduct in the ranks. It's called Operation Honor. It's been around for four years. According to StatsCan, it's done almost nothing. To tackle all this, let's bring in the scrum today. Tonema Charles, senior reporter for the Toronto Star. Joyce Napier, the CTV's Ottawa bureau chief. Craig Oliver, CTV's chief political commentator and the only one with a patented wave. And our special guest today is the retired Major General, David Fraser, uh, great to see all of you. Uh, Major General Fraser, always good to have you, and thank you for your service to our country. As someone who served in Afghanistan, what was your reaction to how this monument, the Kandahar Monument, was um, well, hidden away? I, I was disappointed would be an understatement. I was quite upset that, you know, something that we, we, we have that is so so emotional, so special to the the 40,000 men and women who served in Afghanistan, the 162 families who lost uh, loved ones over there, that the fact that this happened without any in participation was certainly a mistake by the Canadian Forces and the Department of National Defense. It's, it's incomprehensible. Wasn't it interesting the way in which the senior ranks took this all upon themselves uh, for their own? When you consider the fact that uh, most of the 158 young men and women who were killed were very junior. They were corporals and sergeants and, and lower than that. And this kind of reminds me of the famous quote by Churchill describing the British Army in France in 1914, which he said were lions led by donkeys. However it all ha happened, <laughs> what, however it all happened, uh, and it's, it is, David Fraser's word incomprehensible is a good one. What's also compounding this is that after the fact, then they tried to explain it by suggesting that somehow to have opened it up would have uh, disturbed the sense of reverence that should have gone with the ceremony, as if the families of the dead soldiers and other victims of that war uh, somehow wouldn't been, have wouldn't been be reverent. Enough, yeah. And then they suggested that the, the monument is fragile and this and that and the other thing. Why they never did a purpose-built place for that monument so that the public who paid their respects and the families as well, I, we still don't have an answer. The sad part of this is not even to have notified or invited the families of these fallen soldiers. Mm. And these are military people. Like, what else? Like, it's beyond, it's beyond foolish. It's disrespectful. And on top of it, you know, they, they did not even invite these families. That they would have hidden it is, is foolish enough that they would then not have notified yeah. these families whose 
husbands or sons. There was one colonel. He's the highest ranking uh, officer that died in Afghanistan. It was a colonel. Not just the families. Think of the thousands of Canadians who lined the highway of heroes and bridges and Absolutely. streets uh, uh, in memoriam as the bodies of fallen troops were brought back. Uh, they belong to Canada. Uh, in a very real sense, we all bore a responsibility in the sense that Parliament voted to send these men and women, and many of them, to their deaths in Afghanistan. So, so it's a whole country that needs so, to yeah, honor these absolutely. people. But General Fraser, I want you to so get what, back what, in there. What, Go ahead. What I, yeah, I just, what, what strikes me on the Facebook picture was you've got a minister who's an Afghan vet, you've got the chief of the defense staff who's an Afghan vet, and you've got a deputy minister and a whole bunch of other senior leadership there. And it's almost as if they had forgotten really the significance and the connection that Afghanistan had with Canadians. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm just sit, sitting there going, all of you have got to realize this is a Canadian story. It's not just a, a Canadian Armed Forces and National Defense Headquarters story. Yeah. Uh, Tonda, what about Operation Honor? Four years ago, when the Chief of the Defense Staff, General Vance, who served our country, as Dave Fraser just talked about, in Afghanistan, he said his first order of business was, we will stamp out sexual misconduct. Well, StatsCan came out and said Operation Honor has essentially been a failure. It's only marginally successful. In 2018 alone, I think something like 900 people within the military said that they'd experienced some kind of sexual harassment or misconduct. What does this tell you that this has been so ineffective? Well, I think it tells you a few things. It tells you it's a deeply pervasive problem, um, not just within society, but perhaps more insidious within military and paramilitary organizations such as police forces. The military isn't the only one that's still struggling to come to grips with how this uh, unfolds in a culture, in, in, in their workplace culture, and how it fails to be uh, dealt with seriously by the leadership. And police forces across Canada are grappling with it too. Why that is? Uh, look, to his credit, General Vance has said that it, he made it a priority, but uh, I think it takes a lot more than just, you know, dedicating but a few officers and you're say you're going to take it seriously. So, so. It, 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 you're dealing with military culture as well. So you've got not only the difficulties of these types of crimes uh, of uh, sexual nature, but you're also in a mentality that is totally not used to this. It is still a very macho mentality. They're having a hard time recruiting women. Uh, so it isn't, it isn't so easy. And I think that it's not going to be, it's not going to take four years. It will take a lot more than that. Uh, General a, Fraser, you want to... And I agree, I agree with culture. that. And I think that... I, I agree with that, and I think, you know, this is about behavioral change. Yeah. I think that John Vance should be given credit for uh, making this a pure operation and, and a focal point. But after several years, it, the program needs to be refreshed. It yes. should not be a Stats exactly. Canada, you know, survey that actually, you know, you know makes the forces change. Uh, the, the vice chief of the defense staff was spot on by saying we have made some progress, not enough. Um, this is also the questions is what how many problems are there at the senior level? How many problems are coming out of Canadian society that we have to sort of educate people on what is and what is not acceptable behavior? But the force has got to re refresh this okay. this program. Okay, but but I want to get to the raw politics. We talk about uh, 
the chief of the defense staff, General Vance. He got, the, the prime minister recommended him for a raise to $306,000. This is the guy that admitted this week, Craig, I own the Vice Admiral Norman fiasco, the one charge that was dropped against uh, uh, Mark Norman after he was dragged out of his job and his life was ruined. This was the week that um, the sexual, the operation um, honor has proven to be not effective. The w memorial is, who's accountable here? And can General Vance, does he have to step out uh, and, and take some accountability? Uh, I think he does. And uh, I certainly think that the government must be taking a very close look on whether they want to send a signal by uh, wrapping up his time early. I mean, but is it his time or is it, is it the, the defense I, minister, Sajjan? No, is it the I, prime minister? Well, okay, Sajjan is another issue. He's got a lot to account for as well. But Vance is in charge. He's the, he's the chief military person in, in, in our country, and he can't get away without carrying the can for some of this, especially, I think especially, the, the, Admiral Norman's case, which isn't over yet by any means. Yeah, he seems uh, to and have Vance thrown. did not investigate at all. He didn't ask questions. He didn't ask other people yeah. to find out some facts before he ruins this man's life, grievously damaged the family of Norman, destroyed his uh, economic lifeblood. He was almost broke. Uh, just before right. they, the government he finally threw him under the bus so quickly. That's 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 the All point. Right. And he throws the, his his number two, Vice Admiral Mark Norman, under the bus like in less than two hours. No questions asked, right? And we have the presumption of innocence in this country un, uh, until further notice. And so, and and then and then this story, and then the story of of the memorial, and then he gets a raise. Like, hey. Just, just, what? <laughs> just to follow up on the Mark Norman thing, it's a mystery that as we speak right now, we still haven't um, seen right. a meeting between General Vance yes. and Mark Norman. So that's another mystery. I got I to gotta leave it there for this section. Thank you very much to the retired Major General David Fraser. But coming up, can the Liberals translate big wins into big momentum heading into the election? Yeah, they got a trade win. But what else? And is the abortion debate about to re-enter the political debate? The Scrum returns with pollster Nick Nano. Stay right here with Question Period. Canadians deserve to know that their government will unequivocally stand up for women's rights and stand up for women's rights to choose. The Conservative government will not reopen this debate. I've been very clear on this. And I find it disgusting and appalling that the Liberals are using this issue to divide Canadians. Well, the abortion debate is creeping back into the political arena. But is it just fear-mongering as the federal election gets nearer? Or is it an issue that might blow up? What other issues will define the election as we head into the final month of Parliament before the election. Will it be pipelines now that a BC court has ruled that the province of BC cannot block what's inside the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion? Will it be the carbon tax? To so talk about all this, let's bring back the scrum. Tanya McCharles is back, George Napier is back, Craig Oliver is here, might be here all weekend, and our special guest for this round is the president and CEO of Nanos Research, Nick Nanos. Uh, great to have everyone back. Nick, I'll start with you. Uh, look, Andrew Scheer has explicitly said he will not reopen the abortion debate. I know it's happening in the United States. Justin Trudeau is sort of insinuating it could happen here. Is this uh, pure fear-mongering or an election issue that Canadians are really genuinely concerned about? 
Well, this is not on the radar from a public opinion perspective, but it's quite clear that the Liberals want to draw out the Conservatives to try to distract voters from a lot of the other controversies that the Liberals are fighting. And, you know, the thing is, for Andrew Scheer, he shouldn't touch this with a 10-foot pole, not a public opinion pole, a 10-foot pole, <laughs> because what it will do, it will distract from his message on the campaign of change and attach potential negative issues and sentiment to him and he's really got to watch out on this. Yeah, Tanya, you've seen this before. Well, yes, and, and in fact, the Liberals frequently uh, try to paint Conservatives as having a hidden agenda, and so Andrew Scheer has adopted the Stephen Harper approach. We won't legislate on it. However, he has been taken, take, he has taken the position that he will allow private members' bills to come forward. He won't stop that. So you ask whether it's fear-mongering or whether it's something that has real traction. I mean, I think from the Liberals' perspective, it's both, right? They are fear-mongering, but they're also, uh, I think, um, playing to a certain segment of the population that uh, doesn't know who Andrew Scheer is and what does he stand for. And it's drawing attention to there is, you know, some limited access to abortion services and abortion plan B medications across Canada. To my mind, that also begs the question of the Liberal government. Why haven't they enforced yes. better access to those right. services? And, and, and you know, it's, it, he's not going to bring legislation, so it won't be obvious. But, you know, things come through the back door as well, right? A private member's bill... And and, you know, you lose a, a, a little bit of rights, you lose a little bit of access, you lose a little bit, a little bit and a little bit. And this is a battle that has been going on. Who knew a year ago that this would be happening in the States? I mean, it is a felony in some states. It's a crime. So will it, will it be as obvious in Canada? No, because we don't do things the same way. But watch it. Th things tend to creep up on us, and I think that losing a little bit of ground means a losing a lot of Shearer ground. Shearer has allowed some ambiguity Absolutely. to rise up about where he stands. Uh, he's not being as firm and solid about this as Harper always was, and I think he has to correct that. All right, let me talk yeah, I know, about... but as yeah, soon as he ahead. starts yeah. talking about that, it's a problem. Yeah. Yes. Well, look, he, he keeps now. saying he's well, not... it's a problem it if he doesn't clarify his position. Well, he has said he will not raise this issue, but as you say, there, we'll find out if there are other ways. Let me talk about the pipelines. Is, Nick, this, this decision in British Columbia by the Court of Appeal, um, not that surprising. B.C. cannot pass legislation to prevent Alberta from shipping Rob Bitcherman through what would be the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion. Does this help or hurt Justin Trudeau, who keeps saying he's going to build this pipeline that he bought with taxpayer money. So far, we haven't seen shovels in the ground. Well, it gives, it gives Justin Trudeau and the Liberals some political cover with the court decision, but let's just put this on the table. Pipeline is a no-win issue for the Liberals, regardless of what happens. For those Canadians that are in the prairie provinces that are fired up and angry at the Liberals in general, it doesn't matter. They can do nothing in order to turn that that blue wave that's coming at them. And for the Liberals, their key battlegrounds are Quebec and British Columbia, the two places that are most against pipelines. So, you know, I would say that for the Liberals, they've got to stay away from pipelines because the thing is, is that even if they accomplish anything, there will be no political dividend in terms of votes come the next federal election. They, they can't stay away from them. They've got to make exactly. a decision. Yeah, yeah exactly. They've got a four and a half billion dollar pipeline like in their this. pocket. And the advantage of the court decision uh, in B.C. was that it gives the uh, government the ability now to go ahead and greenlight it and maybe get some shovels in the ground before the election. So they can't be accused, as they accused the Conservatives in the last election, of never being able to get a pipeline built. 
that's an important factor for the Liberals. And I would say just where Nick says uh, their battleground is Quebec and BC, I think there's also a battleground in the greater Toronto area and Ontario for them. And, you know, economic management and competence speaks to those voters. And I think the pipeline is a part of that package for those voters. Absolutely. And it is, you know, a double victory for the, for the federal government, whether they're liberal or conservative in the future. I mean, this is establishing that pipelines or these kinds of projects are national projects and that provinces cannot intervene and decide for their own interest to stop them. So there is some clarity there, and I think that but for the liberals, that's what they've promised. I think shovels in the ground before the election is not going to make them look bad. Nick. But politically, politically, the liberals have been losing support to the Green Party, right? So let's just serve the Green Party something on a silver platter. Green Party candidates on the ground in British Columbia and also in Quebec, where they can attack the Liberal government, even though the Liberals are making progress on the pipeline that they but, want to push forward. But not That's the, what I mean in terms but, of political But they're confidence. not the only ones losing support to the Green Party. The Conservatives are too, I think, and the NDP is as well. I mean, it's a protest vote. Uh, I think this is 1972, and the Liberals are looking at a minority at the moment, and the Greens are out there saying, we'll support you. So that may not be such a bad deal to have some kind <laughs> okay, of relationship. Okay, in with the, the midst of all this, I, I, it's fine. Alberta's position is fascinating on this, Tonda, because Jason Kenney, the new premier, has said, "Don't assert your uh, central government, your federal government dominance on the carbon tax. I don't like but that. Assert, assert but, your federal dollars. Yes, yes, yeah. yes, but assert it on this pipeline thing." Yeah. And now Jason Kenney said, "By the way, I'm going to travel to Ontario during the election and campaign beside my buddy, Conservative Premier Doug Ford." against Justin Trudeau. Does this help or hurt Andrew Scheer or help or hurt Justin Trudeau? Uh, look, I think it um, gives Justin Trudeau a foil, a political foil to fight against. Um, I don't think it actually helps Andrew Scheer that much. Andrew Scheer is already finding um, that Doug Ford's support in Ontario is very, very soft and collapsing. And so for Scheer to be aligning himself with the likes of Doug Ford. I think Kenny's a different matter. Yeah. Um, th there's potential pitfalls for him there. But Justin Trudeau is chomping at the bit to fight up against a big conservative foe like Jason Kenney. Andrew Shear's got to watch out that he doesn't have his reputation by association yeah. as opposed to on his own. And you know, Jason Kenney and Doug Ford both have defined reputations in the public mind. Andrew Scheer, not so much. And, you know, the thing is, if he wants to control his own destiny and have a chance to become Prime Minister of Canada, he has to show that not only is he separate from them, but he is ready to be Prime Minister and has his own mind on a lot of these issues. All right, and Nick, uh, just 10 seconds left. Uh, we got four weeks left before the, they are off really on election. There's going to be a lot on the agenda. Right now, at this moment, what is the biggest issue shaping the country right now, biggest challenge for the, the politicians? What are you looking at? The economy and the ratification of the USMCA agreement, that's top of the list for me because that's what Canadians are fixated on. Yeah. Oh, it's the economy, it's stupid. The I forgot. I mean, how do I not know that? <laughs> All right, Nick Nanos, Tana McCharles, Joyce Napier, and Craig Oliver, thanks so much for watching. That's right, politicians are going to be in those buildings behind us or near behind us now for the next four weeks. We'll be keeping a close eye on that, and we will be back here in seven short days. Thanks for watching and take care.